So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. You know, I would really like the bike just shipped directly to me. And so we do that as well. And so a lot of people tend to focus on the product, but we've tried to build a business model that kind of meets the customer where they're at and gives them the most flexibility to purchase our products and to experience our brand. And so I don't think a lot of people realize that there's, you know, there's different options there. We have great dealers who are very enthusiastic about the product. They're excited to have the product in their dealership, and they're going to be there to give all the folks the white glove experience that they want. But we also have customers that want to buy online. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Jason Huntsman. Jason, thanks for making time. All right. Happy to be here, Jeff. So for people, for people who don't know what Serial One is and the Harley Davidson backstory and all this, can you can you give people the elevator pitch? Yeah, so Serial One is a spinoff from Harley Davidson in the electric bicycle industry. So we just recently launched back here in October of 2020, and we've been actually working on it internal to Harley Davidson for over two years now. But you know, I can kind of we'll get into this in the discussion. But that's that's the backstory. Well, you know, I grew up on mountain bikes. You know, taking them to like the motocross track and breaking, bending the handlebars because we didn't have suspension. <laughs> being farm kids, right? And, and now I do, you know, a lot more dirt biking and stuff, but you know, thanks to you and Kurt for inviting me down to come ride it. That thing's kind of awesome. <laughs> like I, I don't know exactly what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting that. It was, I don't know. It was just smooth. It was faster than I thought it was going to be. So congrats on a great product. Yeah, it's really, it's really fun. And like, I like to tell people who haven't been on them before, it's just like riding a bike, except you feel like Superman. <laughs> Seriously, right? So, well, can you why don't you, why don't you tell us a little bit about your time at at Harley, and then and then how this came about, and and what's happened post spin out here? Sure, I, I've been with Harley Davidson. I was with Harley Davidson for about eight years. Prior to that, I was with I was with the Ford Motor Company. Most of my career has actually been revolved around electric vehicles and corporate strategy, and so and mobility, and that's where my passion is too. And so, you know, about eight years ago, coming off of working on electric vehicle strategy for Ford and doing a lot of deals in that space, I started in corporate strategy, did a lot of work at Harley Davidson around any what any traditional corporate strategy group would do, investigating you know new opportunities. And when you know we used to look at things in terms of, you know, are we going to make this, buy it, license it, you know, whatever. And, you know, that was, that was my role. And then I transitioned over into building up different capabilities and, you know, eventually ended up leading the electric bicycle division inside of Harley-Davidson, which was, for lack of a better term, a skunk works in, in, in inside of Harley-Davidson. Yeah, I, I believe it was one of the first times at Harley-Davidson that we had stood up kind of a separate business unit within Harley. And so we had our own separate team. We were building it from the ground up. And I can kind of walk through, you know, a lot of that process as we get into our discussion. But most of my background, again, has been in mobility and corporate strategy. And that's kind of how I landed in this space. Yeah. So, you know, most of us are not too shocked to see Harley Davidson doing something with two wheels. But that's a little smaller motor than most of us are thinking about. How did this idea even come up? Yeah, it's not the traditional V-twin for sure. I think any like any healthy corporation does, you know, I did this at Ford and it's at Harley as well. 
you're all you're always looking for the adjacent opportunities that are really presenting themselves in, in terms of in terms of growth, right? And originally we were looking into this space because it, it's you know it has a high growth magnitude right now and it has been for quite some time. You know, at the same time, if you look in the electric bicycle space, you have you know large players, traditional players that you know anybody would could, could think of those brands, but there's also a lot of startups in the space too, and there's a lot of innovation happening. And so when when at Harley Davidson when we were looking at this space, it was really about how I thought about it, at least, was, you know, today, you know, a, a motorcycle, or even if you go back to the founding of Harley-Davidson, a motorcycle was really a mobility solution. And so as you look into even now or in the future, in, in a city or even, even for leisure, is an electric bicycle something that turns into a, a two-wheel freedom machine for, for someone who, that you know, that's just how they experience freedom on two wheels, it might be in that space in the future. So that was the original intrigue of this space, you know, before you kind of start jumping into evaluating the space from an economic standpoint, there's just a lot of growth, a lot of excitement, and to be honest, a lot of infrastructure investment in this space, especially in Europe. Well, you know, I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm on Engadget seeing the new bike with, you know, in front of a display of a mock-up of an old, you know, original Harley from how way back when, but I thought it was interesting that you guys went with more the retro styling and, and it's pretty, it's pretty classy looking if people like that, that old, you know, original kind of OG look. And, and then that battery way down low for that low center of gravity, like you were explaining, like at first, I don't know, at first, so for anybody who hasn't seen this thing, I wish people could see it, right? But it's a pedal assist. It's not like a spin the throttle, right? So when you start pedaling, it goes faster than you're pedaling. But can you talk about this choice to put the battery and the weight way down low by the by the pedals? Sure. I think it's a highly differentiating feature for us. When we looked at, you know, most electric bicycles are built by bicycle companies. So they start from a bicycle and then they decide, you know, where to put the battery after that. And that's that's why you find most batteries in, in the down tube bicycles. We took a little bit different approach because one, we were starting from the ground up. We had a team built, you know, Harley-Davidson engineers who some of them had worked on motorcycles. We also had people from the bicycle industry kind of molded together. And so if we were going to do a bicycle from a clean sheet, one of the most important factors, especially in the electric bicycles, because they're a little, they're, they're faster and they're a little heavier, is to centralize that weight down in the center, where, right where you would put it on a motorcycle. And what that does is it improves handling, safety, and it takes a bike that maybe on paper is a certain weight and makes it feel a lot lighter because you're able to, you know, you're able to handle it a lot easier, makes it easier to ride for a new customer. And just the general riding dynamics of cornering and things are all improved by centering that weight and that mass as low and in the middle as you can get it. So, so in other words, we typically they'll put the battery a little higher. We took what I would say the design and our meticulous engineering and moved the battery down and in the center as much as we could to center that weight. And, and can you talk about your choice to make really like a high-end machine that's going to last for years instead of just the most price competitive thing possible? Um, you know, we were really going after what I would call, and, and the cycling industry has been trying to do this. We're trying to go after not only cyclists, but, you know, general population folks that they may not, they may, they may not even know they're interested in an electric bicycle until they get on and try one and they're in, they can see how fun they are. And so one of our, you know, design ethos going in was really to make a bike that was one, as maintenance free as we could. And then two, just as easy to operate as, as, as you can, as you can make it. So for example, our city bikes, you know, you don't even have to shift them. If you buy the, if you buy the rush, the, the rush, city it shifts it shifts for you and, and the mosh is a single speed so there's no shifting so part of our design ethos was to make sure that the rider could the only thing they have to do is pedal and really enjoy the experience they're having and not necessarily worry about you know shifting or not necessarily worry about all the technical um, aspects that you have to do in a regular bike but in order to do that we had to build in a lot of technology and in order and, and, and so we have you know an automatic shifting hub on the rush cities and we built in you know as much as as we could, like I said, low maintenance and durability. So in our mind, we're, we tried to we tried to build a bike that you know you can ride for five years and just just put air in the tires. And maybe you know there's hydraulic brakes that you may need to be, have serviced every once in a while. But other than that, you know there's no greasy chain, there's no derailleur on these bikes, and we just made it easy to ride. Well, actually, we should explain that right. This idea that you could just plug and go. 
talk about the, well, I guess it's not a chain. Talk about talk about the belt for a second. I was not expecting that. Yeah. So our, our bikes are driven by a carbon fiber belt drive, you know, same exact same on a motorcycle. And so, you know, what that does gives you kind of three distinct benefits. One, it's really clean. It's not dirty. You can rub your pants on it all day long. If you were packing it in your car, a lot of times people will get their cars dirty from, you know, the, the chain on their car, on their bike. And so it's completely clean. It's completely silent and it never stretches. And so there's literally no maintenance there. And that took a lot of work because typically when you see a bike with a, it's pretty rare to find one with a belt drive, but if they do, typically they have a frame brake in them. And we designed the bike without one, which, which took a lot of extra engineering, but we, we really wanted the frame to be solid. We wanted this to last. And so we, we put the work into doing that. Well, you, you've created a pretty desirable product there, my friend. I want to talk for a minute about the business side of things. You know, one of the themes we're spending time on this year is about helping entrepreneurs think about how they're building their business so it will be the most sellable. Whether they plan on selling it now or 25 years from now or whatever, the decisions we make now are going to make it more or less attractive in the future, even if somebody's taking it public, selling it to the public, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested with the spinoff and taking on, you know, taking on different investors and kind of the, the move forward. How do you think about this idea of building the company intentionally? I think it started even when we were at Harley-Davidson, you know, again, it started out as its own business unit when when Jakin Zeitz came in, the new CEO. He he was re he really brought in this culture of winning and and it, and it really resonated with me. And when we got talking about this space and this business as a whole, you know, it's how do we win in this space? And 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 ultimately the decision was made to that, that this needs to be on its own, you know, serial one powered by Harley Davidson, still linked up. We still have a lot of benefits linked up with Harley Davidson, but it needed to stand on its own in order to be in order to win in the marketplace and really succeed. And so how we're at least positioning, how I'm positioning the company is we really try to build a an extremely I wouldn't, I call it a premium bike. It's definitely not the cheapest bike you can buy in the world, but we also try to make it a great value because of the quality, you know, the, the brand and the, the attention to detail that our designers and engineers put into it and testing that was involved. We really try to build a, a quality product that can last a long time and that people are proud of, proud of owning and proud of riding. And so as we're setting forth the company, it's really on that ethos of, of making that one customer, each one completely happy and to give them a, a you know, a license of freedom that they that they can either have on their way to work or in, from a leisure standpoint, riding it around. And it's just a great sensation and it's a great and fun product to ride. From a business standpoint, though, I think, you know, if you, especially if you look at what's going on right now in COVID, there's definitely been a bike boom. And, you know, there's a lot of bikes selling right now. And I, I think, you know, from my personal opinion, you need to be careful because you need to be able to treat every customer and service every customer and give every customer a great experience. And so I would, I would rather have um, a, a more premium product that gives every single customer a great experience versus, you know, trying the volume game. And, and what, yeah, what will the, you know, here we are at the beginning of 2021, what, what would pricing look like right now for these? So if, if you look right now for pre-orders, they range anywhere from 3,400 that includes delivery all the way up to $5,000. And, and I thought it was interesting. Can you talk about the choice to, to help people finance these if that's what they want to do? So on our website today, there's actually, it's just a straight purchase, but you'll see coming out in a few weeks, some finance offers. And again, they're targeted about just giving people that confidence and that flexibility, whether it's a 0% finance offer or a 20 more, 24 month finance offer at a different rate, the flexibility to buy it now, knowing it's coming in the spring and then kind of make payments over time. You know, a lot of people, like I said, these are premium bikes. You may not want to tie up that much cash in a pre-order. And so financing options just give customers, you know, the, the enough flexibility. And we're trying to meet them where they're at on their own terms. Well, you know, what's interesting is like, again, growing up a farm kid, like, you know, bending the handlebars on my bike from Walmart, going off motocross jumps, right? That, that pricing can sound like a lot. But when I was down there and Kurt was talking to me about this idea of like, yeah, but what if you live in New York and you're doing this instead of a car? You know, what if you're in Europe and you're doing this instead of a car? And you want something that's going to be so reliable all the time that is going to last for years and years, like this is a different purchase, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put our customers in two different kind of buckets, but you know, there's there's going to be a lot of customers, and there already are customers out there who are buying this as their primary transportation, and it's a very hip cool vehicle to buy. If you're in the inner city, you can get to work faster on one of these than you can in a car. And so it literally gives you more freedom in terms of freedom of time, but it also gives you, you know, all the confidence of owning what I would call automotive grade engineering into your bicycle. And that's, you know, something people are looking for, you know, because there's a lot of startup brands out there and you're, sometimes you're not quite sure what you're going to buy or, or have down the road. But again, we've taken the time to make sure this thing's going to last and people are going to enjoy it. And if you think of someone commuting, that's, you know, that's their, that's the way they get around. And so we're trying to unlock their city for them and give them, again, more chances to interact with their city and do other things. But what we're also finding just is people are exploring around them, you know, they're just like you might live somewhere for five years and never really explore around it. And what this product's doing for a lot of folks, whether they're commuting or using it for leisure, is this giving them more opportunity to explore their own their own backyard, which a lot of people are, are kind of astonished and surprised to see, you know, what else is there in terms of culture and experience as well. Well, I'm not surprised because I didn't think I would think this is big a deal, but it's so quiet that it's like a pleasurable experience. Like no wonder people would just kind of cruise on it because it's, it's easy and, and that quiet thing, it just, I don't know. It's like, it feels calming. Like it makes me think of like going on a walk in nature kind of thing of like where you actually get to be alone with your thoughts and like, don't get me wrong. I love my like two stroke snowmobiles and, but that's different. I don't know. That's a different bucket for me, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, you get to hear you got to, you get to hear the world around you as you kind of ride by, and that's a big benefit for folks. And also, you could, you know, you get to work without sweating. So, you know, in the past, if you rode your bike all the way there, it's like sometimes it's a lot of work, and you're sweaty, and you have to go take a shower somewhere. And this allows you to get to work or get to where you're going without really breaking a sweat if you choose to do that. Yeah. Well, I I want to talk more about this company building thing because. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, if people are going to spend the kind of money they spend on e-bikes these days, they want to know they're still going to be a company in a few years if I need help with this battery or, if you know, if something happens, right? Mm-hmm. And you are, you know, I can tell from the craftsmanship and just everything, it feels like you're building a company that'll last. And that's, that feels like a core value. Am I putting words in your mouth or how would you say it better? No, I mean, we're definitely, you know, we, we see this as a very, you know, we, we want to be a major player in the electric bicycle space, period. And we wouldn't have launched this. We wouldn't have put everything into it if we didn't think through a lot of work and a lot of, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, we're going to make it there. And, yeah. you know, if you look at what we're doing to set it up as a company, set up our company as well, that we're doing some distinct things that I think will make it last. So one thing is, you know, we we have located our product development and supply base team along with with finance in Milwaukee on Harley Davidson's campus right now. And so we still we still have access to all the you know testing facilities, access to all of the great you know material things that we can have access to as as kind of the living in our parents' basement at Harley Davidson. But you know, what that allows us to do is use all those capabilities to ensure we're building a vehicle that's going to last everything from design all the way to, you know, manufacturability. At the same time, you know, we we recognize that, you know, we're a brand that that is attached to Harley-Davidson, but we're also serial one. And so we, we have to we have to exist on our own and establish ourselves in the electric bicycle space. And so you, you'll see through a lot of our, our branding and advertising, we wanted to draw a through line from Harley-Davidson to make sure people recognize the, the lineage uh, that's there and everything that comes with that and the confidence that comes with that. But at the same time, this is a new space and we want to establish Serial One as a long-term player in the electric bicycle space alongside all of the major brands that are already there. And so from a customer service standpoint and from a, a quality standpoint, we're managing that in-house. You know, we're not we're not outsourcing those most important pieces of our business because one, we want to talk to the customer firsthand. We don't want the customer to call and talk to someone else. We want them to talk to us. When we're responding on social media, that's us. You know, we're not outsourcing that to a separate team. And so we're really trying to give the customer confidence that one, we're here. And if they have questions, they can talk directly to us and experience our brand with us. And two, down the road, we're still going to be here because we're building for the long term. Yeah. When you think about this building for the long term, what's, what's an example of somewhere you could have taken the easy route, but you're maybe making that extra investment intentionally, or you're doing things that are more pain now, but will pay off in the long run. 
know, I, I think a lot of it has been the last two and a half years we've put into the, the engineering and design. If you look at the electric bicycle space or the bicycle space in general, you can see a few of our competitors that went out and you can just license a bike from another brand or, you know, you could, you know, fly to, you know, other places in the world and there's plenty of, of industry there and you can you can build a bike company in a couple of weeks if you wanted to. We took a different approach. Everything from the vehicle to the business has been built up from the ground and we've tried to spend not only the extra cash but the extra resources on ensuring that we have the capability to not only engineering and design the bikes uh, but service the bikes and service the customer afterwards. And so, you know, if you look at our investments, we've made investments in, you know, CAD software, investments in a full engineering and supply-based team, investments in a customer service team. And we're trying to, you know, instill in, in everyone that comes into the company a long-term view that we want to be a leader in the space. And so those are the types of investments that we're making. I'm interested in any thoughts. And again, I'm going to put words in your mouth and you correct me, but I'm interested in any thoughts you have in attracting team members who are going to view this more of a, like a cause instead of just a job. Yeah, no, I think, you know, if you look at who we've already got on the team, I mean, there are people who are very passionate about the space and it's not necessarily that you have to be a bicycle junkie. I try to find people who I would, I believe are just mobility or better world junkies. They, they do, they want to create a better world. And, you know, that's one thing that, you know, we all kind of shared in common as a team internal to Harley and now outside of Harley is we truly believe if you look at the electric bicycle, it is a solution that betters the world. Not only does it better the customer's life, but it, you know, it doesn't create any pollution on you on your way to work. It reduces the capacity of, of cars and it's, and it's done through, you know, clean electric energy. And so, you know, if, if you're into that, we attract people who, you know, who, who, who like that thing. And, you know, that's my true passion is, you know, electric mobility is really, again, freeing people's lives up to have a little bit more freedom without damaging or doing, you know, doing harm to the environment. Yeah. So what does that look like practically? Do you interview any different? Do you, do you advertise somewhere different? What does that look like? You know, I think, I think a lot of people do this, but we try to bring people on either part-time or as a consultant for a while. And, and why we do that is all the obvious reasons from, from, a, from a team fit to, to just to see how we both kind of interact together. But I think it's also to make sure that there's, there's true passion uh, for what we're doing. And so, you know, we go, we go search for people out in the various places where you would usually search for people. But, you know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people who are very passionate about the bicycle industry. And I love the bicycle industry, but but we're also trying to do something a little bit different too. I, I tend to favor people who are really passionate about pleasing the customer and, and again about making their life better. Because in, at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do is, is get someone who really has that passion for, for making customers' lives better through a through a product. And and you know, I've asked other guests this. I'm interested in your thought, but how do you how do you separate the people that just interview well from the people that really are? Is it is it kind of that bringing them on as a consultant in the part time and and just seeing how it goes over time? Well, I think there's always a first impression for someone for someone you think like wow this 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 person's very passionate about the space. They seem to be very very into being a part of the team. But you know I, at the end of the day, I just like to see people who are persistent as well, and you know they they enjoy talking about working here. They enjoy solving problems that we have here. And to be honest, the one thing I look for once they're on board sort of as on a part-time or on a consulting basis is do they pick things up and just solve them? Because, you know, as everyone knows in most startups, there's so many things that have to get done. And, you know, to me, there's two people in the world. There's people that kind of point it out and say, hey, we have an issue here. You know, we really need to get this solved. And that's not the type of person I'm trying to hire. The type of person I'm trying to hire picks it up, says, hey, I found this thing. Here's my proposal for fixing it. You know, I've already started. Is this okay? Can, can I keep going and fix this thing? Uh, I think that is the number one thing I try to look for at this stage when we're bringing on people is, is do, they just, do they just pick stuff up and, and start fixing it without looking for permission or without looking for someone else to fix it for them? Yeah. Well, you've had a lot of positive, positive things said about you in the press. It seems like a lot of things are going great. What's something that people don't ask you about much that you that you would talk about? Uh, that's a good question. I think a lot of people, you know, people don't 
people tend to focus a lot on the product, uh, like we have in this conversation as well, and that experience. But I think if if people kind of come in and work with our team, you know, there there there's a there's a kind of an un, uh, underlying you know rule that we have no ultimatums, and so we're we're trying to really look for the best solution in the electric bicycle space. And so we're, we really try to treat everything from a, from a clean sheet basis. And that doesn't mean we'll copy things that are, that are already happening out, out there because it's more efficient. But if you look at our business model and the way it's set up, we've really customized it to whatever the customer wants. If the customer wants to go into a Harley Davidson dealer and test ride a bike and have the bike put together and, have, and just show up and have it all presented to them, that experience is there. But we also have a lot of customers that say, you know what, I'm extremely comfortable buying online. I don't mind putting a few, you know, putting the pedals and the seat and maybe the front tire on. I, you know, I would really like the bike just shipped directly to me. And so we do that as well. And so a lot of people tend to focus on the product, but we've tried to build a business model that kind of meets the customer where they're at and gives them the most flexibility to purchase our products and to experience our brand. And so I don't think a lot of people realize that there's, you know, there's different options there. We have great dealers who are very enthusiastic about the product. They're excited to have the product in their dealership and they're going to be there to give all the folks the white glove experience that they want. But we also have customers that want to buy online. And so we have to serve those folks as well. So I'm interested in that idea of when you think about, you know, people going to a Harley Davidson motorcycle dealership, what does that education look like when you are now going to have something like this on display placed there? What what does that education look like for the dealership employees? So I think you know, we're, we're going around right now and sort of educating dealers and training them. And, you know, they'll be the, they'll actually be the first one to have bikes here in the spring that people can come in and test ride. And, you know, a, a bicycle, mo- most people know how to ride a bicycle, not everyone, but if you, it's something for the dealers that if you look at a motorcycle, only about, you know, four to 5% of the U.S. population rides a motorcycle. Um, that's a little higher in Europe where people ride, you know, motorcycles and scooters more, but a bicycle is just open to a broader population of people that can walk in. And so, you know, I think not not only with us, but just over the past decade, Harley dealers have, 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 you know, put a lot of effort into being more welcoming. You know, sometimes you'll, you might hear stereotypes of walking into a Harley dealer and, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes the stereotypical Harley experience that I hear sometimes, but most dealers that I visit, that's not the case. They're very welcoming. And for this product, I think you're going to have a lot of folks that maybe have come in before and they're, you know, your typical motorcycle buyer, but they, they see this product and they're like, wow, I might, I might need, I mean, either I might need one of those too, or, or, Hey, my, my niece or my nephew or my son or daughter or my spouse would be really interested in this. And it's an, it's a, it's an opportunity for them to also ride a Harley in the form of an electric bicycle. And so when, when the, when, you know, when, as the dealers are kind of opening up to this, they already have folks walking in, but we hope that this brings additional door swings to them. And at the end of the day, a test ride does wonders for these because they're so easy to ride. You hop on, you turn the thing on and, and that's it. You start pedaling and you can adjust the amount of assist you want, but people really have this great experience that, you know, I, I've never seen someone riding it, not smiling. And no one ever comes back and says, wow, that was awful. They always come back and say, wow, that was amazing. And it's just another product that they can offer a whole new people who either don't have motorcycle licenses or maybe just aren't quite ready or quite willing to to get into motorcycling yet. Yeah. You know, I mean, just as you talk about that use case, like I think, so my wife just didn't grow up riding bikes. She grew up kind of a city kid in L.A., and they're just, just their family wasn't into it. You know what I mean? So she just wasn't her thing. Maybe about a bit at college, but not really, right? And, you know, like for me, when I'm looking at bikes, I'm thinking like my teenage son just traded his enduro bike and got like a downhill bike, like triple clamp forks, the most suspension you can get, whatever. And I'm like, my, my son's got a way better bike than me. Like that's the bike I want, right? To go to the ski hills. But my wife's been saying like, we should all have bikes. We can do family bike rides. And this is something that I like, I would like for that type of purpose, but I know she would like it for that. And she would go ride with her friends where I don't know that she's really going to make the effort otherwise. Cause she just, you know what I mean? Like she likes it, but it's not like a passion per se, but if it was this effortless, I could see her making so much more time to do it kind of a thing. 
Yeah, again, I think the, the bicycle industry in general has been trying to reach out for years beyond what I would call the pure cyclist. And so that's where we, that's where we built the bike for. We built it for that sweet spot. And, you know, you, you won't see people racing in spandex and Lycra in our, any of our ads because just, that's just not who we are. But we are we are for the, you know, for the, the general population, for couples, for families, for anyone who wants a, very, a quality electric bicycle. And they're, they're still fast. They're still fun to ride. But but we built them to be easy and, and not be as as you know as a, as I would say technically engaging as a typical race bike. So I'm just thinking about my years living in Orange County, where you see a lot of bikes modified to be able to put a surfboard on the side because. Yep terrible parking at the beach you know and especially where i used to live in san Clemente, like arguably the best surf spot in continental united states is san onofre you know trestles down in in san Clemente. but that's a long walk like i don't know if you know about it you anyways, yeah, was, you park it's, it's really long walk right yep. so you see bikes on it something like this would be like <laughs> pretty killer for that anyway yeah i'd like i'd like to see a board uh, a board latch uh, accessory come out on one of these in a little while. We're not there yet, but <laughs> for sure. Well, my next question is, I'm interested in your philosophy on selling a premium product because there, there's certainly a place for being the low-cost provider. You know what I mean? A lot of a lot of business people have made a lot of money being the low-cost provider. And yet, you know, somebody like Apple who does not have the majority of the market share does have the majority of the profits from an industry, Right. But there can be that trepidation of like, ooh, you know, like we we are really going to have to show up and and prove the prove the value. Can you talk about your mentality of you know intentionally going after a premium market? Yeah, I think it starts with, and I've talked about this enough, so I'll just make it a one sentence. It starts with engineering the product that way. You know, we don't engineer the product so someone's going to have to come back in a year because, you know, the bike's falling apart. We, we engineered the product to last a long time and we hope they come back because they love the product so much and they, you know, want to experience something new rather than, you know, it falling apart. So I think quali- high quality is the first step. You can never... You can never enter the premium space without a high quality product. The second is just our channels that that we're trying to go into and trying to experience. You know, as you go into a dealer experience, it's it's a white glove experience. They'll help you through the product. They'll help you pick which one, size it. And then not only that, they'll assemble it for you. And so that, you know, you don't, you don't, if you don't want to, you don't have to do anything. They'll completely set it up for you. And the dealers have been, you know, selling luxury motorcycles for decades. And so they know how to take care of a customer. Yeah. It's not being compared to a $400 bicycle in the shop, right? It's being compared right. to the Harley motorcycle in the shop, right? Yeah. Right. But, but on, on the flip side though, for let's say there's a, there's some folks that want to purchase online and, and that's fine. And we've set it up for that. But, you know, again, our customer service, our, our assembly videos that we're producing and things, they will, they will all have a premium feel. And like I said, I, you know, people who probably haven't looked at this space very much, you, you see comments on, on pricing, but we like to think it's a great value given the components that you're getting. If you look at the Rush City, for example, I mean, there's an automatic shift, automatic transmission and hub in the back. There's an Enviola hub in the back. That's a very high-end component that you you typically don't see on a bike. You know, there, there's self-adjusting hydraulic brakes. We went to we went to the the we, we went to the, the the range of putting in a custom battery and a custom design battery that lowers the center of mass so that you have a better handling experience. Everything from the welds to, to everything that goes on the bike is meticulously engineered and designed for a purpose. And I guess my question maybe is more so: How do you break through the noise? to have people find out about all that, you know, like how do you not get it dismissed out of price before they've actually investigated? How do you, when you think about, there's a lot of clutter, there's a lot of noise. What, what kind of thoughts do you have about that? I think there's two things. One, I think just, just, you know, we did our brand launch in October and it was very successful. You know, a lot of people picked it up and, and that's part of the powered by Harley Davidson. I mean, um, let's be honest, if, if we weren't connected or, or at least if we hadn't come through or come out of Harley Davidson, the powered by Harley Davidson really lends us the ability to cut through some of that noise, a lot of the noise, to be honest. Sure. 
and allows us to stand up Serial One powered by Harley-Davidson as a unique proposition for folks uh, in the premium space. I would say, you know, if, if you look at other places where our bike will, will show up and has shown, shown up, you know, you won't, you won't see us discounting. Um, you know, typically, you know, we have a lot of people question whether, hey, why don't you do a, a deal during pre-sale? And it's like, well, no, this is, this is a premium bike. Well, you know, it's a premium bike. It's a premium product. It's 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 going to be a value to the customer who who buys it. And so we, you know, we typically, you know, won't dis we won't do any brand damaging discounting from from an aspect of of the bicycle industry, which you you usually see quite a bit, to be honest. And there's always a deal going on. We're not going to do that. You know, you may see us do some other types of promoting, but it typically won't be price discounting. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's I think that's something that may push some people. Away. Okay. And that's okay, but but we're we're making a product for a customer who appreciates the time and energy that we put into it. I'm interested when you think about Europe. How does your strategy change? I think the biggest thing about Europe is you know they know exactly what an electric bicycle is. It, you know if you come in the U.S., there's a lot of people who have never been on one, and in fact we might be the first experience on one. And it's exhilarating and it's fun. Um, in Europe, that's a different story. There's electric bicycles you know all over the place. They sold over two million in in, in Germany in, in 2019, and it's a, and it's still growing. And so you have to approach that market because it's it's a lot more it's competitive for sure. You have to approach that market on a little bit different merits. Um, one, we do have the brand powered by Harley, Serial One powered by Harley Davidson, and that gets us, you know, to a certain spot. But like I said, if you didn't have the quality and the engineering and the component, the high-end components uh, that a German customer will for sure recognize and research, um, you're you're just not going to survive in that space. Your your German customer is 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 very educated. They've looked at all the reviews. They're very technical and they know bicycles. You move to the Netherlands, they practically grow up on bikes, and so it's a it's it's very much a different atmosphere and a different go-to-market strategy because you, you know you have to compete with people who just they're they're experts on their bicycles that they purchase and you have to hit all of the things that they want and need in order to purchase a bike. And there's always trade-offs in any business. How did you decide what they wanted and needed that you were going to meet? That's a really good question. I think, you know, if you lined up specs between us and, you know, a bunch of other products, you know, like I said, we really went after the experience of riding the bike. We are probably not going to be the lowest weight bike on the market, right? We're not going to be the lightest market. We're probably not going to have, you know, from a racing standpoint, the most performance. We may have a little larger battery because we want people to be able to go for a little bit longer trip. Our bikes are comfortable. So, you know, one thing that we did, and this goes back to ergonomics, if you look at a, a bike, the, a bicycle that you typically buy in a bicycle shop, and if you buy a small and you're a person buying a small versus an extra large, you'll typically have a, different, a little bit different riding position. You know, your, your small person will be a little bit more upright riding and your, and your, your person that buys an extra large would, would be a little bit more bent over. We went to the, again, we went to the trouble and the expense and the cost to make sure every single bike every single size has the same riding position. That costs extra money because we have to, you know, design every tube to fit that size. And so, you know, when 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 you're when you're designing for comfort and for ease of use and ease of ride, you have to do those things because a customer gets on it and it just feels nice, whether they're buying an extra large or a small. And so I think that's one thing we did, you know, from a product standpoint. I think on the on the sales side, you know, again, you can go to a dealer and get the full white glove experience and a lot of people will just because that's that's where they want to shop but if you want to buy a direct direct from us there's an option for you to do that as well what is the harley network like in europe uh, it's, it's very strong and in fact in europe the brand is extremely popular because of what i like to say the americana of it and you you know you have a lot of dealers in places like germany and the netherlands and they you know they sell a lot of motorcycles in 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 germany we've got a, i think a very healthy spread of, of harley davidson dealers if you're in a, in a major or a mid-city you're going to have one close by and you know and if 
if not, we can we can always send one to you anyway. And that's the flexibility of our business model is we, we do think the dealers certainly provide us a very, very huge strategic advantage. Again, they have all their own customers. They can really service and, and give someone who's coming in new that white glove experience. And that's important, but we still want to give the other customers options as well. Yeah. I mean, it's evident how thoughtful you've been and intentional about things. One of the questions that I have, and this could come from your experience either at Ford or at Harley, when you think about one of the biggest innovation lessons, an aha that you had, again, anywhere anywhere in your career background, what's one of those that has carried through over time for you? Uh, for me, I'm a, big, I'm a big proponent of this, and it's kind of a philosophy I have on corporate innovation in general. You know, if you look at corporate innovation, I think a lot of companies struggle with it. And, and it's, it's a difficult thing to do, right? It's a difficult thing to, you know, grow outside your core business. And it's a difficult thing to evaluate opportunities and how you should attack those opportunities. And so, you know, typically when I've, you know, been a part of or even seeing corporate innovation, a lot of times you'll get what I call just the R&D lab. They'll produce something cool every once in a while. You know, you'll make something, you'll make a splash on social media, but nothing nothing ever really makes it to market. And to me, that's not corporate innovation. Well, that's research and development, which you need to be doing as well. But, you know, that's not corporate strategic innovation. And so when we look at Serial One, again, and the way it was produced, it was intentional. And it, it, it's a big risk to say, hey, we're going to we're going to start this little incubator up inside of Harley Davidson and and we're going to we're going to design something from the ground up rather than licensing it or or partnering with someone. We're going to build our own team and we're going to do it right. We're going to do it how we think it should be done. And that's a lot of risk. And that's not the right decision on every corporate innovation. Some some innovations you should license. You know, some innovations you should partner. But in this case, we felt like customers are savvy enough in this space. And in order to give the customer the experience that we think is worthy of Serial One powered by Harley-Davidson, we really need to build, we needed to build this from the ground up. It couldn't be a badge slap. It had to be intentional. It had to be, you know, very authentic. And, and, and for that reason, that's the route we went. So my next two questions are, well, I'll just do one at a time. The first one is you hear about so many corporate innovation things where like somebody way up the food chain is patting themselves on the back because we ran an innovation competition or we're, we're, we're fostering innovation around here. But really the bureaucracy kills everything before it makes anything money, before it could ever grow far enough to make money. So any advice for protecting it from the mothership? I uh, know that's a good that's a good topic, and is this it comes up quite often uh, in the positions and the the roles that I've been in. I think one is you know you have to have enough, enough autonomy uh, to explore things, and I think you know when we were at Harley Davidson doing this you know business incubator for lack of a better term, we had the freedom. We had our own engineering team, we had our own product development, our own supply based team, sales, marketing, all internal. Now that wasn't to say that you know we had freedom to do anything we wanted because that certainly wasn't the case. But we, we were given enough leeway to um, really, really produce and go after something in a brand new space, recognizing that the electric bicycle space in terms of anything from product development to sales is a little bit different. But we also had a lot of support. You know, we worked with, with in hand in hand with our marketing department. We worked hand in hand with, we had, you know, styling and product development leadership that kind of came in and gave us constant feedback, right? So it, it wasn't it wasn't like they were trying to stifle anything, but we got a lot of great feedback from product development leadership at Harley-Davidson, from marketing and sales leadership, and, and all of that was constructive without killing it. And that's a little bit of a balancing act. Uh, you know, I would say the third thing that we had was, you know, you know, at least at the, at the time, my boss, Luke Mansfeld, is the chief strategy officer at Harley-Davidson, you know, he he gave us sort of the the freedom to do things and Harley did as well. And that takes, it takes guts. And that wasn't to say we didn't have any hard conversations because we had a lot of hard conversations about how things fit with the brand, how things fit with how we usually do product development, how things fit with how we usually do sales. And so having that constructive feedback loop with great leadership was a helpful thing. I would say the last thing was just our, you know, our new CEO, uh, Jakin Zeitz, he, he was able to come in and, and you know, 
he took recommendations. Like I said, he really empowered people to give what they thought was their best, best recommendation on how things would succeed and when. And he, he, he really empowered us to make those decisions. And so without that leadership at the top, establishing that culture of winning, winning in no matter what space or when, no matter what your role is, I don't think it, I don't think this, this, Serial one would be here today. And in fact, if I look at most companies or even look at certain times at Harley Davidson in the past, I'm not sure it would have happened. It really takes the it really takes a good leadership suite that's able to give you enough flexibility to do things, but still give you constructive feedback. I would say from managing the innovation side to for just for people that are out there doing that, you you need you really need to stand your ground on the philosophies that you believe in. And so when we set up the e-bicycle business inside Harley, it was different. And there there were more than a few times that we had to have hard conversations and you and you just you have to stand your ground on if you believe it's the right thing for that business. And if, and eventually if you have great leaders, that will come through and and they'll support you in, in those endeavors. Well and this kind of leads me to my second big question, which is, you know, typically the really crazy or stupid people, you can call them whatever you want, who decide to start businesses. <laughs> right? Like those of us who don't understand statistics, because you can't understand statistics and think it's a good idea to start a business. Okay. So many crazy people who are very entrepreneurial don't end up in corporate America, right? And so this idea of attracting the right entrepreneurial talent who, who can be okay with uncertainty and who can go out and do customer discovery instead of just execute a plan, like assume, oh, this is, this is what it is. Now we're going to execute it. But those people who can, can be good with like the experimentation and the uncertainty and throwing away months of work because you found out, even though we thought it was great, the customer didn't. Can you talk about like being able to find enough people like that to come staff an organization and, and how to protect people like that from people outside the organization who are not like that? And just that potential juxtaposition of executors from corporate America versus entrepreneurs who can come across as crazy people. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I consider myself an entrepreneur. You know, I, I've been in, I've had leadership roles in startups and raised money before even going to Ford. And so I sort of already have that blood kind of kind of in me. And even at Ford or even at Harley, I, I wouldn't say I was a black sheep. I wasn't, but you know, I, I certainly found my space doing entrepreneurial things. And to be honest, inside corporations, I think I think there are a lot of entrepreneurs in there. If given the opportunity, they would be entrepreneurial. And a lot of people, you know, you have to kind of what I what I from my experience, you do have to sort of weed out who I, I would call the entrepreneur who likes to talk about it but never does things. Yeah. What does that look like? How do you weed them out? Yeah. So inside a corporation, I tried to look for people who had side projects. That could be anything from a side project inside of Harley that, that maybe maybe they'd get in trouble for, maybe they wouldn't if they didn't have it. Or, you know, some some folks even had side gigs. And usually you see the manifestation of, of entrepreneurship in those types of things. It's like, well, that's your, that's your day job. What else do you do? And, and I find that, you know, you can find people that are, that are doing things either outside of their core work, or even if it's known, they're always involved with innovation. It's always like, oh yeah, you got to go call him because he's, he's the one who pushes these types of things forward. Outside, bringing people in from I'll be honest, we had a few people that we brought on the team who were a little leery of coming into a corporation. And so you had to establish and prove to them like, okay, hey, look, here's how it's set up. Here's the autonomy that you're going to have to push this forward. Knowing that, yes, we're going to have to have those interactions with the corporate mother mothership. And, and not all of those are bad, by the way. You have to kind of convince them of that. But you have to, to show them that there's an opportunity for an entrepreneur to grow a business there. And then third, and I think lastly, from from just from our, the experience of Serial One is you have to be willing to launch. You know, I, I got to tell you, I have, you know, I we, so we own three companies, right? We've got our investment firm. We're doing the real estate investments. We've got this media company and we've got a consulting firm. And on that consulting side, I go on some of those engagements with, with staff or other people or just with clients. And being inside some of like the biggest, most well-known companies in the world and I go to these meetings and there's like 20 people in the meeting to begin with. I'm like, wow, what are all these people doing here, right? 
And I'm like, what do they need me for? And then by the end of the meeting, you're like, there's not one person in this room that has ever had to pay the mortgage by something they sold. Like, how do they even stay in business if this is how the decisions get made sometimes, right? So I'm interested in the like, that idea of helping people who want to stretch themselves who've never had to actually sell anything like an entrepreneur and, and helping them, you know, because maybe they are more senior in their, in their corporate life, but they're junior in the like, no, like the buck stops at us at making money. Any, any thoughts on helping someone through that transition? For me, it's, it's, I mean, you got to sell the opportunity. If, if they're truly an entrepreneur and they truly want that, you, you've got to be able to sell the vision and the passion of doing that. And that that's not only launching the business and making it a success. There's economic factors in there too that are motivating. And so all of those things have to play together to in order to get someone who I would say that you need out away from a corporate environment, but they, but they also have to have the attitude as well, right? You know, I don't, uh, at least I personally made sure that people on my team are not going to regret making this jump. And like I said, some folks on the team came from Harley Davidson. Some folks were hired outside of Harley Davidson. And I think that's a, a healthy mix of folks to, to bring in. But, but you have to, at least I've found inside every corporation, there's tons of excuses not to launch. And there's tons of, ex that anyone there, anyone can say this isn't gonna, this isn't going to work because that's an easy thing to say. But if you have the data and you have the kind of the conviction that this is going to work, that's something you should do and you should put forward and you should keep pushing. And you know, again, it comes back to leadership. But you have to have a leadership that's going to be willing to maybe not make a huge colossal failure, but let you make mistakes. And so if you keep pushing, you get closer and closer to launch. And at some point you have to sell, you have to sell these things to customers. You can do all the research you want in the vacuum, but until someone's paying, you know, paying money for it and experiencing the product, you're never really going to know. And so you just try to build a strategy that I would say minimize. It's not, it's definitely not just throw risk at the wind. You're trying to minimize your risk and go after the right customer, but you've got to have the conviction from the data and the research that you do that no matter matter what, I'm going to make this a success. We're going to come together as a team. We're going to figure this out because we know from the fundamentals that we've studied that there's a market here. We know because of the product and the engineering that we've like put our blood, sweat, and tears in that we have made a great product. And we're going to figure this thing out and, and, and sell this to people and help them have a, you know, a, a more wonderful experience in their life because they own our product. And unless you have those convictions, you know, you're never going to make it out of it. You're never going to make it out of a corporate innovation atmosphere. You have, I mean, you have to have that. Yeah, that's great. Well, listen, we've covered a lot of subjects. Anything else you want to touch on? Anything we didn't cover? No, I just go back to, you know, if, if, if you look at Serial One, it's kind of a unique thing. I mean, there's spin outs of certain companies that, that I think happen. There's a lot of corporate internal innovation with it, where they launch new products. But what I'm really excited about is it, it's really a, a badge of honor, I think, for, for Harley-Davidson leadership and for, for us as a Serial One team that, that we started something internally, we followed through, and we launched it into public now where, you know, our hope is to make this a huge success over time. And I hope that inspires, you know, other people, both inside corporations and just entrepreneurs in general, because now we're, you know, we're our own thing and we're out here, you know, scraping and crawling and clawing just like every other entrepreneur would with a big brand behind us, which, which helps out a lot. And so, you know, I would just say to anyone in corporate, in corporate innovation, that there are ways to do it and it's exciting career path. And any entrepreneur that, that is involved with it, it, it's a good place to be. And so we're having a lot of fun. Well, this has been great. I totally recommend everybody going to serialone.com and checking it out. And that's the number one in the URL there. And and so when, when can people go into dealerships and try these out? Late spring? Uh, yeah. So these bikes will be available in the spring. You know, it's kind of hard in the winter right now. So the, the dealers will be the first ones to have the bikes and then customers will be start receiving bikes soon after. Very cool. Springtime. Well, this has been fun. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, Jess, thanks for having me. And again, if you want to reach out for anything else, uh, feel free to ask. It's been a pleasure. Great. Bye, everyone.